Welcome to another edition of An Artifactual Journey. I'm your host, Philip J. Merrill, and today I'm really excited, and you know I say that all the time, but I really, really am excited today to be able to talk about Negro League Baseball, and we have a one of the foremost scholars that I've met over the years uh, that has a man cave, has actually dedicated part of his life to researching Rap Dixon. And many of you do not know his name, and that's why we're so honored and delighted to have Ted Moore from Pennsylvania to talk with us today. But I want to give you a quick backstory. Well over a decade ago, I was in Harrisburg doing research, and I was with my number one researcher for Black Harrisburg, which is he, he must be 110 years old. I know he's not. I'm just teasing him. Um, is Caleb Jackson. And uh, Caleb w was so gracious to take me to an event where I got to meet this white guy who had all this great research and artifacts tied into the Negro Leagues. And that's none other than Ted Knorr. And the other point I wanted to get across up front was that just the last week, I was delighted when I went on Facebook to see my other go-to person in Pennsylvania, uh, Harrisburg for Black History, which is Barbara Barksdale. Uh, and Ted was at the cemetery at Rap Dixon's headstone, bringing out a magnificent portrait of Rap Dixon, along with Dr. Fred Wirt. And you'll see that in the background that, that Ted is pointing to, and he's going to talk about that. And Dr. Fred Wirth, who has visited thousands of sites belonging to uh, Negro League players. So without further ado, I'm going to let Ted do what he does best, which is talk about <laughs> Rap Dixon and the Negro League. Take it away. What in the world led you to this um, historic research that you, you've been doing for Rap Dixon and the Negro Leagues? Well, where did I meet Rap Dixon? I, I think Phil asked me yes. what made me get started with Rap. And that would be around 1989, I uh, discovered that uh, the Harrisburg Giants outfield, the, the team, played home games on Sundays in Lancaster, which is where I was from, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And once I discovered that, I noticed how great this outfield was. And it turned out the center fielder is in Cooperstown. He's in the Baseball Hall of Fame, Oscar Charleston. And the left fielder is in Springfield, Mass. He, he was the captain of the Renaissance Five, a spectacular basketball team from the 30s. In fact, the first professional world championship basketball team in the world. Uh, so that left the right fielder, and his name was Rap Dixon, and he wasn't in any Hall of Fame. And I found him to be as good a ball player as every listener, I hope, when this episode is done, uh, will feel the same way. So does that answer your question, Phil? Yes, it does. And I, I had no idea. So before 1989, what was your knowledge base tied into Negro League uh, Baseball? Well, very little, although I, I had joined Sabre, the Society for American Baseball Research, 10 years earlier. But when I went to my first Sabre convention, the first person I met was John Hallway. And he's preeminent, certainly was then, among Negro League researchers. 
So I was five years into discovering the Negro Leagues by 1989. Okay, so could I backtrack for a minute? Did you meet my colleague, Larry Lester? Oh, for sure. Oh, God bless. Larry's a good friend. He was the chairman, co-chairman for the longest time with another friend, Dick Clark, of the Sabre Negro Leagues Committee. Yeah, that's why uh, I wanted to ask that because years ago, uh, I was just so excited to be able to interact and be in uh, Larry Lester's uh, company in his presence. Yes, yes. Larry, uh, Phil Dixon, yes, Dr. Brunson, Dr. James Brunson, these are the pillars from the African-American community in particular uh, that, that lead the way uh, in Negro League baseball research. And so you, you to use a phrase that has a Southern uh, connection, you were actually in high cotton, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> well, with those fellas, yes. yes. <laughs> That's a good way of putting it. Okay, so now I'm sorry, going back with your, with your presentation. <laughs> okay. Well, I call my presentation Raps Rap, and you'll notice I call it episode 43, because I've been doing this since 2007 in uh, PowerPoint format. But this is going to be a fresh approach. Uh, and my, my question I want to answer is, what makes Rap Dixon a Hall of Famer? So first, let's meet Rap. He's born on September 15th, 1902, to John Dixon and Rose Goodwin Dixon. And he's their first child. And you see here, they'll have five children in the first decade of the 20th century, all born in Kingston, Georgia, which I had the privilege of visiting and speaking at just last June. I was going to ask you, have you been to his uh, place of birth? And now you just answered that question. Yes. Oh, yes. It was a thrill to be able to get there because... Georgia's a long way away for me. Yeah, it is, it <laughs> but Rap's born in 02, his sister Rachel, 05. Then there's twins, Paul and Pauline, in 07. And just, oh, by the way, Paul also was a Major League Baseball player. And Pauline, unfortunately, fell victim to tuberculosis in 1930. But she shares a earthly grave with Rap. Rap is buried, you know, in the same stack of coffins with Pauline and his grandfather, John, uh, who I think Rap even outlived. Rap will pass early, but I don't want to get ahead of the story. Okay, the last brother is John Wesley, 1909. This family, like thousands, millions, of other African-American families left the South in two waves, one before World War I and then following, and the other before World War II. And it's considered in operation, the migration, until the 70s. But uh, RAP comes up probably around 1915, and that easternmost arrow there of those four arrows pretty much depicts Raft's journey from Kingston, which is just north of Atlanta, to Steelton, which is in the center of Pennsylvania. The magnet to bring families to Steelton was the steel plant. 
This was a monster of a plant. It's the first large steel plant in the country. And it's also the first to use the Bessemer process for uh, creating the steel. Uh, all the guys in the caravan that came up from Kingston worked at the steel plant with the possible exception of Oliver Goodwin, that's Rap's uncle, who you'll meet in a minute, why he came to Steelton. This is Adams Street. At the base of Adams to the bottom here would be the steel plant. And then as you come up the street, this is existing housing. This would be where Rap lived uh, from at least 1918 till his death in 1944. And of course, as a baseball player, he wasn't there 12 months a year. <laughs> right. In, continuing up Adams Street, we come to First Baptist Church. And this is what brought these families from Kingston to Stilton instead of Coatesville, PA, or Youngstown, Ohio, or Gary, Indiana. Uh, they came because Oliver Goodwin was called the pastor of this church. And he, his pastorship began early in 1914, and that's why I believe Rap probably came up in 15, because uh, historian James Riley has Rap on the local adult baseball team in 1916. So to to be on a team in 16, you probably needed to be there a year or so earlier. Moving further up the street, two blocks further north, there's a school called Hygienic School for Colored Youth. Now, it's difficult to paint this picture. Uh, I'm not from Stilton, but this really wasn't segregated because the Stilton School District was open to all in all its schools. However, the African-American community led by this man right here, Dr. Howard, uh, they saw the need for hygienic school. And many, I would say most, of the African-American community sought to go here as opposed to with everyone else. Uh, and this school operates to about 1960. So I know some graduates. And, and some of them uh, are sorry for the uh, uh, more official integration and to lose this precious childhood memory. But this is where Rap graduated from eighth grade in 1919. And I'm going to give you two vignettes of Rap's youth, and then we'll move into baseball. He had some extracurriculars when he was in school. Among them, in the first three are not surprising, football, and he played for the hygienic AC not Stilton High School. That would be graduates of this school you're looking at. Uh, and he played baseball for the Keystone Giants, which was a local semi-pro team headquartered on Adams Street. Uh, the manager lived right across the street from Rapp. His third athletic uh, sport was boxing. <laughs> Rapp boxed in a thing, and I'm sure, Philip, you, you've heard of smokers. <laughs> These were gatherings of men, uh, usually at night, playing cards, drinking, uh, often being 
entertained by scantily clad women, but also <laughs> sometimes, in Rob's case, boxing. His last uh, extracurricular, he was in the school band. He played second trumpet in the Steelton High School combo. Okay, that takes us up to the 20s. That takes us up to the 20s where his baseball career begins. And the question I want to answer today is what makes Rap Dixon a Hall of Famer? And to do that, we need to look at his statistics, his legends, and his opinions. First, I'm going to look at his statistics through the eyes of a scout. And what better scout to use than John McGraw? the third winningest manager in baseball history, the winningest manager in the National League, and a man who had an appreciation for African-American, for Negro, for Black baseball talent. Uh, when he passed on, the story says, his wife found a list 30 or 40 players long in his belonging of players that he coveted but could not have because of the system in place at the time. A scout looks at a player, can he hit? Can he hit with power? Can he run? Can he catch? Can he throw? Those are the five tools that a scout looks at. Well, this is the headline in the Harrisburg Telegraph, February 2nd, 1926. John McGraw praises Herbert Dixon, that's Rap, star outfielder. And he finishes up, he saw Rap playing in the winter of 25-26 in California. And this is the quote he gave the Harrisburg paper. Dixon is without question one of the greatest outfielders in the United States. That means in McGraw's eyes, he probably felt Rap had at least three or four of the five tools. I'm going to quickly run through some statistics that show that he wouldn't have been wrong if he felt that way, because we have an advantage over McGraw. We're looking back. I'm looking at Rapp's career statistics. And this first one, I might have to explain a bit. OPS. That's not a familiar term like batting average. Uh, all it means is it's the addition of his slugging and his on-base percentage. And it's something that Pete Palmer developed 30 years ago. And now many baseball organizations use OPS as their offensive barometer. Well, Rats OPS 944 is the best among the 40 non-Hall of Fame Negro League players that batted as often as Rap in the database. His OPS plus is also first, and this is technical stuff, Phil, I'm sorry. The OPS, plus is, the OPS Plus just means it's adjusted for era and for ballpark. So it kind of neutralizes uh, the data to make them more comparable from the 40s to the 20s. Could he hit with power? Again, Rap has the highest slugging percentage of all the most used Negro League ballplayers not in the hall. He hit 21 homers for every 162 games. Again, that has no peer. Now, to measure speed, it's a little difficult. What I'm offering 
is let's look at reps annual statistics per 162 games which is what they play now in the majors he averaged 37 steals 13 triples and 116 runs scored discounting home runs so you don't double count those and that combination is also the best among those 40 non-Hall of Fame players. I want to add here, this combination on speed ranks third overall among players that batted as often as Rapp. The only players faster than Rapp using this system are Cool Papa Bell and Oscar Charleston. So Rapp could run. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> now the Looking at the defensive side, the last two tools, and these are separators because most players who can hit are not necessarily the best fielders, and most of the best fielders are not necessarily the best hitters. Rap is different, like Willie Mays. Could he field? There's three positions in the outfield, left, center, and right. In the Seamheads database, there's three metrics, fielding percentage, range factor, and run saved by arm. So that's three positions, three metrics, nine possible results. There's only one outfielder in the database of, of over 800 outfielders that are better than average in all nine, and that's Rap Dixon. And lastly, and I'm happy we're through the stats because <laughs> they can bore some people, but yeah, Rap Dixon- this is impressive. No, Ted, this is impressive and significant information that our viewers and listeners need to be made aware of. So please, it is not boring. <laughs> okay. Well, and we saved the best for last. There are 800 outfitters in the database. There's a statistic called run saved by arm. Mm. No one has saved more runs by arm than Rap Dixon. So he's a true five tool player. Yes. Now, Philip, I'm, I'm going to run through these legends. I, I really want to focus on the opinions. But the greatest outfield, in my opinion, during segregated baseball, that means better than Babe Ruth's best outfield, better than Ty Cobb's, better than Tris Speaker's, better than any other Negro League outfield, is the outfield in Harrisburg from 1924 through 1927. In left, at the bottom left there is Fats Jenkins. He is also a Hall of Fame candidate. He is in the Basketball Hall of Fame as captain of the Renaissance Five. His whole team was put in in 1963. The center fielder is the greatest of all the ball players. Uh, I think, with the exception of Babe Ruth, I'm a, I'm a little, I'm a big Ruth fan. Uh, he's the only player that was better than Charleston. The only guy that comes close to Charleston, in my opinion, is Josh Gibson. Um, and then of course, in the lower right, that is Rap Dixon. This outfield is intact for four years and uh, we'll, we'll see later what the Hall of Fame thinks of them. In 1927, Dixon goes to Japan with his winter league team. They don't report to their Negro league teams for the 1927 season. They report to uh, Japan. 
And speaking of Rapp's five tools, they all were on display in Japan. He used to stand on home plate and throw balls over the fences before the game, just showing off. And I can prove it. Here's a picture. Okay, here's another thing I can prove, another picture. Uh, according to historian Jim Riley and to a Major League Baseball article about the trip to Japan, Emperor Hirohito in 1927, before he became our enemy, right, right. presented Rap Dixon with that trophy for his overall play or, or and or for the team's play. There is a picture of the team holding that trophy. Rap's not holding it, unfortunately. But uh, I believe the trophy definitely exists. Whether Hirohito gave it to him, you know, there's no photographic evidence. I, I, I have no real clue. I like to believe it. In 1929, Rap gets 14 consecutive hits. Since the league that he did that in has been declared a major league by Major League Baseball, that's going to be a new major league record. Currently, the major league record was 12. So Rap ran right past 13. And uh, let's take a look at how great a record that is. Joe DiMaggio's 56-game hitting streak was 82 years ago. The last 400 hitter, Teddy Williams, is also 82 years old since he did that. I parenthetically note 75 years. Uh, if the Negro Leagues, or I should say when they're folded in the statistics to the Major League Record book, Artie Wilson from 1948 may be the last 400 hitter, not Ted Williams, but that has yet to be adjudicated. Cal Ripken, he's held the consecutive game record for 28 years now. And before that, Lou Gehrig for 62. Summing those two, it's been 90 years since Gehrig set that record. It's been 94 years since Rap Dixon set his record, and it's been unapproached since. Okay. Yankee Stadium, 1923. Who hits the first home run? Well, it's Babe Ruth. It's fitting. It's called the house that Ruth built. I call it the house that Dixon rehabbed oh, because on that. July 5th. Yes, thank you. <laughs> on July 5th, 1930, in the first game the Negro Leagues ever played in that great stadium, in his first at-bat, it took Ruth two, in, Ruth, in Dixon's first at-bat, he pushes a ball to the right field corner, which was where Ruth hit him. Rapp was a right-handed hitter, so he, his pool field was left. But Rap could tell the shortest distance, and he put a ball right smack in the middle of Ruth's 298-foot porch, and uh, that was the first home run by an African-American in Yankee Stadium. Two years later, the man with his foot on the bench is the great Oscar Charleston, who played with Rap in Harrisburg and again in Philly in 28, but he put together the greatest of all the Negro League teams. Between 1932 and 1936, the Crawfords were the best team Gus Greenlee's money could buy. Let's take a look at this picture. On the far right is Hall of Famer Judd Wilson. Moving leftward, Hall of Fame third baseman Judy Johnson. And then, of course, the great catcher Josh Gibson 
Hall of Famer. And then we have Rap sitting there listening to Hall of Fame manager Oscar Charleston. We need to have five Hall of Famers in this picture. Uh, something is wrong with the picture until the man on the bench is, is inducted. The following year, Rap is elected by the fans to the first Negro League All-Star game. Uh, he's an All-Star eight or nine times during his 11-year peak between 1925 and 1935. 1934. Rap is spending his winter in the Dominican, in Cuba, in Puerto Rico, and he's playing for a team called Concordia out of Venezuela. Now, I got to show you some, some of his teammates. This is the great Josh Gibson. This is Martin Diego. These are both Hall of Famers. This guy we've all heard of, this is Louis Aparicio, senior. <laughs> this is the Louis that we know. This is his father. father and of yeah. course, smack in the middle of the second row, there's Rap Dixon. Uh, I think he hit about 390 for that team that year. Now, I do got to point out, he gets hurt there. He's only 31 years old, but he hurts his back. Really would have ended most careers. In fact, he plays very little in 34. When he returns home, he only plays in seven games. But he manages the Baltimore Black Sox. And he's the first professional manager for this young man, Leon Day. And I met Leon in the 90s, and he had fond memories of rap. He referred to him as the right man for the job uh, because Leon's father you know, he didn't trust the Negro Leagues. This is his young boy going off at, I think he was 16 or 17, and he trusted Rap, and uh, Leon ends up in the Hall of Fame. Okay, now it's 1935. There is no World Series this year, but the Pittsburgh Crawfords play the New York Cubans for the Negro National League title. The star of the New York Cubans is Rap Dixon. He's been rehabilitated. The, 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 the manager of the Cubans was Martin Diego. And of course, he knew Rap from their year before in Venezuela on the Venezuelan team. So he brings Rap to the team and they play a seven-game world well playoff against the Crawfords. There are five, four Hall of Famers in that series. Let's look at the stats. The Hall of Famers are Charleston, Gibson, Bell, and DeHigo. <laughs> in light green, I've highlighted the guy who led in a certain category. You'll notice Rap Dixon led those other four in batting average, on-base percentage, second only to Charleston in slugging. He outslugs Gibson. That's not easy. No. And his OPS, again, uh, Rap had the best. So that's Rap's last hurrah as a player. But he's not done. In 1937, the team you see in this picture uh, played their season in the Dominican for the dictator right in the middle of the picture, Trio. He was, he was the, the unelected. I, I mean, he might have been elected, but it wasn't democratic. Uh, this is Josh 
Gibson was on the team. I think this is Paige. If this isn't Paige, I don't see him in the picture. But Paige, Cool Papa Bell, they're all on this team. And when they come back home, they're suspended from Negro League play. Gibson had a had a, a way in back to the Grays, so he what he didn't need a team, but they formed a team similar to Bingo Long in the movie. They barnstormed on their own and go to Denver and beat teams featuring, although they were over the hill, Rogers Hornsby, Grover Cleveland Alexander, Sammy Baugh, the great football player. This semi-pro tournament in Denver was an opportunity for black-white competition that was not found many places in the country at the time. But they needed a manager, and they hired Rap Dixon. Now, this is a legend. Uh, I believe that. I've heard of evidence. I've never seen it. Uh, but Rap appears in box scores in Denver, and he also pulls uh, Cool Papa Bell out of a scuffle at third base, which is something that would be done by the third base coach, which often is the manager at the time. So I I believe Rap managed this team to the Denver Post Championship. Two more and I'll be done these legends, but I can't ignore this one. 1942, Rapp is retired and he's coaching the Harrisburg Giants, no longer a major league team, but he brings four white players to Philadelphia to play Hilldale. And Rapp was quite adamant about the need to integrate baseball. You find articles in the paper that he is heavily quoted on and here, in this day, you know, he lived up to what he was preaching. He integrated uh, the Harrisburg Giants and uh, the Philadelphia Hilldale team. Another thing he does one year later, Harrisburg had been out of the major Negro Leagues for 16 years, and the Harrisburg Stars are back in the Negro National League. Rap is a PR man for the team. That team is pulled and a decision is made by their administration, which would have included Rapp, to tour the country with Rogers, uh, Honus Wagner and Dizzy Dean selling war bonds for the, uh, for the effort. Okay, this is what I wanted to focus on, and I think I'm probably pretty well into my time, but what do other players think of Rap Dixon? Well... Before I get into that, I want to just point out, and this is something that needs to be corrected. There are seven Negro League outfielders in the hall. There are 41 other major league players, meaning white or American and National League, whatever term you want to use, uh, in the hall for the same period. 14% of outfielders are of color prior to Jackie crossing the line. Since then, <laughs> I mean, this is, this is, it stands out like a sore thumb. There's 27 outfielders in the hall who debut after Jackie. 78% of them are players of color. Now, I'm not looking for a quota. I'm not looking for 78% of the outfielders before 47 to be uh, of color, although I, I don't want to limit either. It would take 137 additional Negro League outfielders 
to make those quotients equal. I'm just talking about one in particular and a dozen are required to be putting it in there for the Hall of Fame to meet its standards as an educational nonprofit. Okay. What does the Hall of Fame think of rap? Well, there are seven Hall of Famers right here. And I'm going to read their names. These are the Hall of Fame outfielders from the Negro Leagues. Monty Irvin, Cool Papa Bell, Oscar Charleston, Turkey Stearns, Pete Hill, Cristobal Torriente, and Home Run Brown. But there are five others on a ballot, meaning these are the dozen greatest Negro League outfielders in the opinion of the Hall. Now, what are some other opinions? In 1952, the Pittsburgh Courier, one of the leading newspapers of Black America, picked an all-time team. And these are the 10 best outfielders on that team that are not in the hall. And you notice they have wrapped third behind Chino Smith and Clint Thomas. And just ahead of Fats Jenkins, the other Harrisburger, he's right behind Rap. All right. Now, more modern day, the Negro League celebrated 100 years in 2020. And unfortunately, uh, the COVID kind of pushed that back a bit. But the Negro League Baseball Museum in Kansas City named a centennial team in 2018. And these four players, and you notice I've crossed one off because praise the Lord, he was put in the hall in 2021. Buck O'Neill was the manager of the Centennial team, and he's now in the hall. But three players, and it's a 32-person team, only these four, were 28 of them are already in the hall. So this is a great credential for Rap Dixon. He's the only position player on that team yet to be inducted. There's also pitchers Dick Redding and John Donaldson. Larry Lester, speaking of my friend and your friend, heading the Sabre Negro League Committee uh, two years ago. He had a survey, and uh, these were the players that were ranked in order as the most worthy of the Hall of Fame. Short, shortstop Dick Lundy was first. Just in total amazement with all of this. I'm, I'm just I'm loving it. Keep going. Keep okay. going. Well, the point I want to make here, and we can come back to any of these, is – Rap is second. And him and Dick Redding were tied for second. So these are just opinions of folks about the greatness of Rap Dixon. This poll I organized, and I do feel a little sheepish uh, because Rap ended up number one, but I, I surveyed 77 uh, respected researchers and authors, uh, Black, white, uh, Latino, and uh, in their opinion, Dixon is the number one candidate for the hall that's not in. What I want to do, who best could talk about Negro League outfielders but the first three Negro League outfielders put into the hall? Monty Irvin, Cool Papa Bell, and Oscar Charleston. This is Monty's list that I got from his book, Nice Guys Finish First, uh, by Monty Irvin and James A. Riley, published in 1996. And you'll notice 
in order. He has Oscar Charleston, Cool Papa Bell, Turkey Stearns. They're all in the hall. And then his good friend, Wild Bill Wright and contemporary. And then he lists rap. So Monty is saying Rap Dixon is the fifth best Negro League outfielder of all time and behind only Bill Wright among those not in. What does Cool Papa Bell think? Well, he's he names his team to two authors named Donald Dewey and Nick Asasella in 1996. That's a great book, by the way. Okay. Those two authors got 100 baseball players to list their all-time team. But Bell's team, he cheats a little because he knows he has to honor Charlie. But he puts Charleston at first, and Charleston did play first. In fact, when he when he was with Bell, he probably was at first by then because of age. That, that enables Bell to name three other outfielders, and he names Turkey Stearns, Monty Irvin, and Rap Dixon. So Bell is going further than uh, Irvin, because Bell's saying Dixon's in the top four. But Oscar Charleston is going to go even further. In 1949, the Philadelphia Evening Bulletin had Charleston name his all-time team. And this is significant what he does here, because he names Martin Diego in left and Cristobal Torriente in right. Those are two Afro-Cubans. So what Charleston's saying, it's not the way he put it, but it's the way I interpret it. Rap Dixon is the greatest African-American outfielder he ever saw. And he makes this pronouncement in 1949, meaning this is the father, you know, in a, in a, in a fashion of Willie Mays, Roberto Clemente, Hank Aaron, all the great outfielders, the 21 Hall of Fame outfielders that come after the, the Charleston interview. And one more point I want to make here. Charleston puts Dixon in center field. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Both DeHigo and Torriente played a higher percentage of their games in center than Rap. Charleston played center. In my opinion, by putting Dixon in center field, he is saying not just the greatest African-American outfielder. I think Oscar Charleston is saying, with the possible exception of the man in the mirror, I think Charleston is saying Rap Dixon is the greatest outfielder he ever saw. Again, those are the three, the first three outfielders. Those are their opinions. Rap Dixon, in ascending order, uh, is hailed as the most eligible consensus-wise of those three wise men. But the last victims of the segregation of baseball prior to 1947 are us. Because some of these names I've mentioned, even the most avid baseball fan has never heard of them. And uh, that's, that's our loss. I mean, and our loss is not comparable to the loss that these men had during their lifetimes. But we, too, are a victim. And, and Philip, thanks to your invite and thanks to the breath I still have uh, and Larry Lester and others, we need to do our best to ease the victimhood of, of the uh, baseball fans. And one of the ways to do that is for that Hall of Fame to open its door a little wider.
Ted, this was magnificent. You, you've left me speechless on different slides that you've uh, put together. They're well-researched. The, the data is absolutely phenomenal. Even if you're not a baseball fan, after watching and listening to you, I think people will become a baseball fan, especially of some of these uh, lesser-known Negro League players that really were uh, superb athletes uh, that had to do a whole lot to survive on the baseball field and off of the baseball field during uh, Jim Crow in America. So hats off to you. Kudos. This was outstanding. Thank you. I'm so I, I got a call or, or, or email Caleb because I would not have met you if it wasn't for Caleb being Mr. Black Harrisburg historian. And uh, I got a couple questions or comments for you. One, did anyone ever get to Sam Lacey to get his opinion? That's a good question. I, I, I was with Sam in 1991 or two, the same time I was with Leon. I did talk to Leon about rap. You know, I, I don't have any idea. I, I think I've seen some teams by Sam that he's picked. However, uh, rap didn't make them because you got to understand Charleston, Bell, Stearns, Monty Irvin, you know, rap is among the best. Charleston's opinion, notwithstanding, you know, rap's not at the top of the list. So when you ask uh, Sam Lacey, uh, at the time that I had the privilege of talking to him, there were only four in the hall. Mm -hmm. So those were the four that you would go to uh, if I'd oppressed them. And, and uh, because, of course, Sam is a Baltimore guy right. and rap played. Uh, more games for Baltimore than any team other than the Harrisburg Giants. And that, that's why I was asking that question. So the, the rare photographs, where did they come from? Are they from the Negro League Museum in Kansas City? Are they from private collectors? Or um, Could you just uh, delve into that briefly? Yeah. Well, there are some very good photographic collections. Uh, I don't think I had too many photographs because rap doesn't appear in too many. Bill Dixon of Kansas City, mm -hmm. Larry Lester mm -hmm. of that same town, mm -hmm. uh, the Negro League Museum, the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown are all good resources. And there's other collectors and whatnot. Uh, I do have some pictures and I'm going to talk about the one we're looking at. Uh, this is a painting, as you can tell. So it's based on a photograph from the Courier, and that's another answer to your question, uh, the black press, but uh, microfiche and even today's online preservation, the photographs are among the most difficult to really bring the light. But I, I want to show you here, this is Raph Dixon batting in the 1933 All-Star Game. This couple right here, this is Raph's wife, and this is me. <laughs> I, I wasn't there. I wasn't there in 1933, but you can see I have a shirt on similar to what I'm wearing. It's a Harrisburg Giants shirt. And uh, the artist, I asked him and he, he agreed. He put me in the picture. So I was thrilled, uh, thrilled with that. Now, did you commission uh, the artist to do this or, or did you? Um, no, actually better than that. I served on a panel for him. His name's Andy Brown. He's quite the prolific baseball artist, okay. uh, and I helped him produce a Negro League panel. So he he painted this for me. It's it's a you know eight by twelve or something. It's not a huge like the picture behind me, uh, 
This is a Dane Tillman. If you know Dane, he's from Exton, PA. He took my black and white team photos, and he's, you know, this here is Ken Freeland, a white player from 1954. This is Rap Dixon from 24. This is the owner, Colonel Struthers. He brought these players to life uh, in full color, and uh, I have a print. I wish I had this original. I was going to ask you that. So, so the magnificent, authentic frame that you have of the image of Dixon, can you tell me the story behind that? Oh, yes. Please. First of all, that's done by Phil Dewey, Phil Dewey uh, of Grand Rapids, Michigan. And he does marvelous work. Let me, let me, here's the picture. He, I love that. He, it's, you've seen the photo and even other cards uh, that says Hilldale Giants. The, the photograph says Hilldale. I asked at least two other artists to do it. Now, I wasn't commissioning anything. Okay, <laughs> but okay. I, couldn't, I couldn't find anyone to make it say Harrisburg, but Phil did. And this magnificent picture and frame fills a woodworker, as you could uh, guess. Yes, that, the frame is, is, is spectacular. And uh, it was in a Harrisburg museum for a year. And uh, I, I'm very moved by it, by how it finished, because a friend of mine with some fairly deep pockets, obviously, <laughs> he, he felt it never should leave Harrisburg. It should be with Ted Knorr. And uh, that's how I have it behind me. So I'll, I'll, I'll be forever uh, grateful to him. Uh, I do think it's headed for Cooperstown when they do the right thing up there. Okay, so um, thank you for sharing that. So my, my last question is, what can any of our listeners, viewers, and, and fans that follow us in Artifactual Journey and other work that we do at Annie Jackson Company, LLC, what can they do to uh, move the Rap Dixon Hall of Fame effort to another level? Can they well, can they call? Yes, the yes. Email? I what? think there's a role to play. And people in Steelton and people in Kingston have asked me that same question. So I'm not going to lose your number, Philip, and okay. others. Okay. Uh, here's the schedule. December of 2024, there'll be another vote mm -hmm. for inductions in 25. They're going to have Dixon compete against Dick Allen, who belongs in the hall. And, and yes. Yeah. And other players from the, the 30 years ago, right. every player up until 1980 is going to be on the same ballot. So what they're doing here is they're punishing these Negro leaguers by integration right. after punishing them by segregation when they were alive. There has to be a separate ballot. There has to be separate, educated, knowledgeable voters uh, in order for these guys to get their due. Uh, so I guess there is a reason to shake the walls up there. And we got to let the hall know that they can't do that. Correct. Because uh, in part, interjection, please. And part of our fan group would be the Baltimore community. That's right. That's yes. Thank you. This is wildly beyond anything that I thought uh, you were going to do. Uh, I I know that when I first met you, you were excited about the Black Sox photograph that I I shared with you. 
got to visit Midland for the first time. I'd been at oh Lincoln wow, and I got to see Rap Dixon's site, of course. So thank sure. you. Sure. I'm promising you the next time in Harrisburg, I'm going to be giving you a call in advance because I want to get together with you, pose for a picture, and hopefully be able to uh, see some of that Rap Dixon man cave stuff you have in your house. <laughs> well, I look forward to seeing you. Uh, my wife tries to keep, uh, she's, you know, the, the man cave looks like it's mine. And uh, she, I have to sneak visitors in. Okay, well, guess it's not what? quite that bad. But guess what? Here's the, here's the deal. You can tell your wife that this visitor is on different TV shows that might make her be a little more excited about who's walking in your door. Okay. There you go. Okay. So Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Bless your heart for your dedication, your scholarship, and your passion for Rap Dixon, Oscar Charleston, and, and the rest of the folk that um, have left a, a powerful legacy that everyone marching forward should be well aware of. So thank you, and we will That's be right. My pleasure. Bless you. All right. Thank you.